If you have a Bible, then I'd encourage you to turn it to the book of Psalms, where we'll look at Psalm 5 in the first book of the five books of Psalms. Psalm 5, this is the fifth message in our series through book one that we're calling Songs of Our Savior. If you don't have a Bible, the handout that I mentioned earlier has the entire psalm printed and outlined for you on the back of the order of worship. So again, feel free to get up and grab that handout at the back podium. Before I read the psalm, I want to set it up by telling you or refreshing your memory of a somewhat well-known scene from a children's movie called The Little Rascals. I grew up watching The Little Rascals And when I was thinking about the way that today's message would be received, it reminded me of this scene. If you don't know, the movie, The Little Rascals, is a bunch of little kids that are acting a lot like grown-ups in some ways in terms of the way the movie plays itself out. Spanky and Alfalfa are two little boys, they're best friends, and they together founded the Woman Haters Club. Everything was going great with their friendship and with the club until Alfalfa met the most beautiful girl he had ever seen in the world, Darla. His best friend Spanky and all of the other club members are seriously concerned. He's drifting in his faith and so they discipline him. First, They sabotage his romantic date with Darla and put him on basically what what is equivalent to a house arrest. And he is being guarded by other club members to never see Darla again. While Alfalfa is in this state of house arrest, he realizes that since he can't see Darla, he should try and write her a love letter. His friends, of course, are not going to deliver a love letter since one of them says, wait a second, we're he-man woman haters. We can't deliver love notes. But Alfalfa convinces them, oh, this is no love letter. I've changed my mind. This is a hate letter. And in the movie, the camera moves right over Alfalfa's shoulder, and you watch him writing with a crayon the following words on a pad of paper. He says, dear Darla, I can't live without you. Really, I'm not kidding your Romeo, Alfalfa. But as he's writing these words, he's tricking his friends into thinking that he wrote the following. And so as he's scribbling on the paper with his crayon, he's audibly saying, Dear Darla, I hate your stinking guts. You make me vomit. You are the scum between my toes. Love, Alfalfa. These he-man woman haters listening are very satisfied with this hate letter, and so they take it after Alfalfa folds it up, seals it up, and they never open it, they never read it, and they go deliver the message to Darla. But these two friends, Buckwheat and Porky are their names, just in case you were wondering. They make it to Darla's house, but can't remember on the way there where they put the letter, and in their confusion, Porky pulls it out and uses it as a handkerchief to blow his nose, then realizing, wait, I have the letter, and it's ruined, and we can't read it. 
buckwheat says, oh, it's okay, it's a short letter. I remember the message, Darla. And then he says, dear Darla, I hate your stinking guts. You make me vomit. You're the scum between my toes. Love, alfalfa. Well, why did that scene ring loudly in my mind as I thought about Psalm 5? Well, just like that scene in Little Rascals, the big question for today's message is, which message are you going to receive? Are you going to receive a love letter from God in his word, or are you going to receive a hate letter? Will today's word be received by you the way Darla received it, which was, I hate your stinking guts? Or was the author's original intent as he was writing a love letter, I love you and I will do anything. I will even die for you. Is that what you will receive? That's the question I want you to be thinking about as we read Psalm 5, and then hopefully we'll have some answers to that by the time we end. Let's read the psalm, follow along as I read, starting with the little introduction at the top. It's part of the original language as far as we know. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm, or simply put, a song, written by David or written for David, there's ambiguity. But it certainly seems like it should be sung, and it was for worship, so let's see what the words of this song are. Verse 1, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And this is the word of the Lord. May he bless our time together as we consider these words from Psalm 5. Big idea, one sentence. God loves the righteous, but he hates the wicked. God loves the righteous, but he hates the wicked. You could say it another way. 
If you don't like the word hate, is that too offensive, too strong? Substitute abhor. I don't know, I think that sounds worse. Or you could just say it a different way altogether. God blesses and protects his people, but he punishes and he casts out his enemies. The message of Psalm 5, I think, is summarized with one or two of those sentences. God loves righteous people. He hates wicked people. He blesses and protects his people. He punishes and casts out enemies. And what I want to do is ask simple questions today. Simple questions to help you read the Psalms. This sermon series is to teach you God's word, but is also to teach you how to use the Psalms as not something that was written to you, but that was something written for you, something for you to be using every day in your reading of God's word, your prayers to God. In all of the Bible, the Bible is addressing and talking a lot of times to people. But here we have the Bible mostly talking to God for us to learn how to talk to God and pray to him, worship him. So here's the three simple questions. Is this really what Psalm 5 is about? Does the Bible really teach that God loves the righteous and hates the wicked? Second question, why? If the Bible really does say that, not just in Psalm 5, but that is a message in the Bible, why does the Bible say this? And lastly, and most importantly, the one we will spend the most of our time on is question three. Who then is the Bible talking about? Who does the Bible say is righteous? And who does the Bible say is wicked? Is that you? Will you receive a love letter from God today? Or will you receive some hate mail? Let's take these questions one at a time and hopefully be able to not just learn more about Psalm 5, but really learn more about the God of the Bible and the message that he is giving us. First, is that really what the Bible says? Well, I don't think it's really hard to argue that that's what Psalm 5 is saying. If you notice the structure of the psalm, I've tried to outline it in the handout, but you'll notice that verses 1 through 3 begin stanza 1, first section. And that stanza is the psalmist, and let's just presume that David wrote it because Psalm of David could mean a psalm written by David, and we know he was musical, and we know that he was wise, etc., etc., So a psalm written by David, David's writing, and he's saying, God, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry. You are my king and you are my God, for to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Introductory section. He's he's addressing God and he's asking God to hear his prayer and his groan. And what you'll notice is that section 1, section 3, and section 5 are all directed to God in light of his character and about David's turning to God for prayer, for worship in the temple, and for refuge and protection. That's the theme of those three stanzas, prayer, worship in the temple, and refuge and protection. So if you drop your eyes down in verses 7 to 8, you'll see the middle stanza, stanza 3, verses 7 and 8, he says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house, referring to the tabernacle or the temple, which he then makes explicit in the parallel phrase, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. And then if you jump to the last stanza, you'll notice 
the theme and the focus is on God, taking joy, singing over the protection that's given, exulting in the Lord because of the Lord's great blessing on the righteous. So what you have is a a stanza one, three, five, that all have a clear theme. And then they're in between those stanzas two and four, you notice that the subject matter changes. It's still talking about God, but it's also talking about evil people. For you, verse four says, are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And the verses 9 and 10 talk about these people again. Notice that in verse 6 it says they speak lies and he picks up that right from verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self. So now we get not just the words of their mouth, but the picture here is that the words that they speak are a depiction of their heart and their heart is destruction. Their throat is open and it's like a grave and it is full of dead things inside the heart. So they flatter with their tongue, but really their words are full of deceit and lies. And so the the request of David in the psalm is in verse 10, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let that sink in for a second. Don't pass over the fact that David is praying and asking, God, I want you to punish them for their guilt. This is not a prayer of forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is a prayer of bring down the hammer, God, because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. They have rebelled against you. They're not just my enemies, and I'm not just frustrated with them. They are your enemies too, God. So I don't know if it's really one of those psalms where the difficulty is in understanding what is on the surface here. I think all of you can just read it, hear it, and see that there is a contrast between God's love for the righteous and his hatred or his abhorrence or his plan to destroy the wicked. That's what the psalm is about. Really, the Bible does say things like this. In fact, let's just notice the contrast very sharply with verses 6 and 7. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And then notice the contrast, verse 7. But I, through the abundance of, and then this is a Hebrew word that has two English words to try and summarize one Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is chesed. And the Hebrew word chesed is a word that has like seven English words, loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, love, steadfastness. And so every translation, you'll see they're like trying to put a bunch of words together to tell you how amazing this God is, that he is chesed. Six, verse six, abhor, verse seven, chesed. Do you see the contrast? So yes, the Bible talks this way. It really does say these things, and it's not just in Psalm 5. So for the sake of not reading hundreds of verses, which we could do, let me just give you one key passage of Scripture that says the exact same thing in our text. This passage of Scripture comes from Exodus 34, 
when God is revealing himself to Moses, when Moses asks for God to show him his glory, and long story short, when God reveals himself to Moses, he says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, keeping chesed for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That sounds like our verse 7, doesn't it? This God is loving, slow to anger, merciful, gracious. He has a kind of love where we don't even have a word that can summarize it in one word. He forgives sins and sinners. Oh, that's a good God. We like that part of the verse, but the verse keeps going. God didn't stop there. He says, but... This same God will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers onto the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I forgive sin. I am a loving, forgiving, slow to anger God. I punish sin. I hate sinners. Okay. That's what the Bible says. Question two, why does the Bible say this? Why would the Bible say that God is this way? Because he is. Because this is what God is like. Friends, we don't come to the Bible and then pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like. We come to the Bible and we sit under the Bible because we want to know what God is like, even if you don't like it even if it offends your Western American sensibilities. If every time you read the Bible, you're like, yeah, I like that. If every sermon you hear, you're like, that's a good sermon because I like everything that he said. And if you're never confronted with the Bible, never confronted in a sermon with maybe your idea about God is slightly off or off way altogether. If that never happens, then you don't have a God, you have a mirror. You're just looking at yourself because you have now painted God as however you think God should be, which then means you're the ultimate determiner of what God is like. And that's exactly what we do not do at church. Case in point, we're going through book one of the Psalms. We're not picking and choosing Psalms because I'm picking the ones I really like that are soft and sweet and comfortable. We're just going to go through all 41 of the first book. And here's my little secret to you. I am not that godly that I would want to pick and choose Psalm 5 to say, you know, if I'm looking around and thinking, what does Embassy Church need? They need a sermon about the hatred of God. I just wouldn't pick that psalm. I'm just confessing. You might think that I'm that kind of person, but I'm really not. I pick books of the Bible and work through them time after time because I know that what you need is God as he is, not as you want to present him. The Bible presents God the way he is, and therefore we need to realize we are made in the image of God, and God is not made in our image. We do not sit above the Bible, we sit under the Bible. So the first reason why the Bible says this is because perhaps that's just the way it is. God both loves and he hates. And in fact, the second reason I'd give as to why the Bible talks like this is because 
logically, it seems like that's the only way for things to be. If you have a God who loves goodness, can he also love evil? I love all that is good, but I also love lots of evil. No, that's a contradiction in terms. If he only delights in, look at the way the language is in our passage one more time. This is one of the clear examples of what God is like. Verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. That's not what you're like. You don't delight in, you don't take joy or pleasure in seeing awful evil happening in the world. Rape and murder and destruction and, and disease and all sorts of things. God does not look down on those things and think, I love that. He does not delight in it. And then here's the phrase I liked the most in my studies. Evil may not dwell with you. And the word that's being translated dwell is a visitor that is temporarily staying, like a hotel guest or somebody staying over your house for the weekend. Not a permanent residence, not a permanent dwelling. The idea was the psalmist is picking a word that would give you a, a concept of even the, the most temporary short-term stay, he, he can't let it stay for even just a second. It's so contrary to his way and his being that it cannot coexist evil and good in God's presence. And that's the way our psalm describes the nature and the character of God. And I would argue that not only is that what God is consistently like throughout the Bible, but he has to be like that if he is going to be good and love good things and be holy. If I, as your pastor, say, I love my children, I think by necessity I must hate the abuse to my children. I cannot look on abuse of my little children and think, well, I, I, it's okay, I'm just so full of love. And I believe that each of us understands this intuitively, which is why the main thing about this sermon is not really, well, that's a really difficult thing to understand. It's really not. I think a five-year-old can understand this. God loves truth. And because he loves truth, he hates lies. The third thing I would say is this. Why does the Bible say that God both loves the righteous and hates the wicked and talk this way? I think in part because this is the way we talk. We being humans. This is a helpful way to communicate ideas, concepts, truth. It's to take contrasts and say them black and white so it's clear. This is black, this is white. If everything is gray and fuzzy, then you're confused. So when I get up here and if I just start talking and I say something and I say, but, but, let me qualify that. And then I say something else, but, but, let me qualify that. And then, but, but, and then we just keep doing that for 20, 30 minutes. You know what you, you all are going to do? You're going to be like, I have no idea what Pastor Phil just said. But if we make clear statements, and then we make other clear statements, the image should be like this. The sermon, or a conversation, or a letter, or a book, it's not like a flood, it's like the channels of a river. And it can go somewhere, and it can accomplish something, and we can have my words to your ears make a path where it lands, and you get the content. And the vehicle, then, is these contrasts. 
The boundary markers are helping you take one concept and take it to another person. This is very old, ancient kind of observations about how to teach and communicate all the way back, as far as I'm aware, to Aristotle. The point is, is that the Bible similarly communicates with these contrasts. It does this throughout the Psalms. It does this in the book of Proverbs. And when you read the Proverbs, you're not supposed to read them as black and white promises. You're supposed to read the wisdom literature as helping paint pictures so you can understand the way God is and how things work. So what I'm trying to argue is that talking in black and white is helpful communication. And I would like all of you as a homework assignment, start paying attention over the next few weeks to how many times when you're having a conversation about anything, but especially some things that are a little harder, you're going to notice that this is what we do. We start to say, well, there's this extreme and there's this extreme, but I'm somewhere in the middle. That's the, what we do. And we always think that we're not on the one extreme or the other. We, we try and make sense of whatever position of theology or politics or making sense of some sort of practical parenting thing and be like, well, I'm not one of those parents or not one of these parents. I'm kind of like one of these parents. And that's how we feel like we're okay. And what I'm trying to get at is that the Bible can and should at times talk black and white so it's clear as a way for you to understand something. And if it's just a flood of information, but, 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 but you don't know this context, but this context, you're just going to feel like, I'm not getting anything. And we know from Psalm 1, the first psalm, the introduction to all of the psalms, Psalm 1 is clearly laying out that these psalms are intentionally trying to tell you there is a blessed man and there is a wicked man. And there's a contrast between what it looks like to be a blessed man and to be a wicked man. And here, when we find ourselves in Psalm 5, we need to have that ready for us to make sense. Oh, yeah, that's what the psalm said they were going to do. Introduce for us categories of the blessed life and the wicked life. So third, final question. I've said, does the Bible really talk this way? Is Psalm 5 just, well, guys... I think that the Bible only says God is love, but there's this one time, there's one kind of instance where the Bible says God hates. False. This is the first of 14 times in the first 50 Psalms where God says he hates a certain group of people, namely the wicked. The first of 14 times in the first just 50 Psalms. And then we already mentioned Exodus 34, and I chose that passage because it's the most quoted verse by Old Testament authors as they reference who God is. So you want to know what God is like? It seems safe to say God loves the righteous, forgives the sinners, is compassionate and loving, and he punishes the wicked. He hates wickedness. He will punish those who have sinned. So that's what the Bible's saying. I've given you some reasons as to why I think that should make sense to you. So what's the hard part of this sermon? This is the moment of clarity for me in my own preparation. The hard part of this sermon is not understanding that basic concept. I think we could get it. I think the children in the room should get it. But whether you're 5 or 55, the hard part of this sermon is the last question of this message. Who? Who does this apply to? Does God love you? Does God love your family, your neighbors? Does God love your co-workers? Or are they wicked? Are you wicked? 
Does God love or hate you? To put it simply, is God going to bless and protect you? Are you one of his people? Or are you one that is going to be punished and cast out by his enemies? Let's first, just again, think very logically here of what I think can be a very difficult question. Not black and white. The principle that has been laid out, I think, is black and white. Now as we start applying it, we need our thinking caps on. We need to make sure you're paying attention. And so let's first begin thinking this way. If we presume David wrote this, we know he's talking in the first person. If you look at the beginning of our psalm, he says, I give ear to my words, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. So first, are you David? Are you the king of Israel, anointed as the ruler over the people of God from 3,000 years ago? Answer is no, that's none of us, okay? Is David your king? Perhaps maybe David didn't write this, but somebody who was a citizen of the Israelite community, and David was his king, and this is a psalm about the king. So is that you? Are you an Israelite? Are you Jewish? Are you covenantally under the law of Moses? No. So far, the psalm's not about you. So far, the psalm was written by or for David, by an Israelite who's Jewish. But here's where things start getting a little muddier. Are you righteous? Do you take refuge in the God that David is praying to? Well, many of you might say, yeah, that's my king and that's my God too. I pray to the same God of David. So we might say that the psalm is both yes about some of you in this room and no, especially regarding the righteous side of things. But let's now shift to the wicked. Are you wicked? Are you boastful? Are you an evildoer? The, the phrase is workers of evil. Like what you do every day is you plan and scheme how to be an evil person. Do you constantly speak lies? Would it be best to describe you as a deceitful person? Are you bloodthirsty? Full of vengeance and rage and want to kill and murder? Have you ever rebelled against God? Well, in some ways, I would hope that all of us would come to the conclusion, similar as we did asking the first set of questions about the righteous, you could say, yes, some of that's true of me. Well, no, not exactly. And here lies the issue. The real issue is not understanding what is being said in Psalm 5. The real issue is do you know how to apply God's word? And so I want to ask that you would think again in the most simple possible way. Are you a good person or are you a bad person? And not just for yourself, because in the same way that we might think about these black and white concepts, easy, simple concepts, what about your next door neighbor? I want you to picture them in your mind. Do you normally think of them as a good person or a bad person? And then I want you to start examining how you determined the answer to both of those questions. Are you a good person? Are they a good person? 
Sometimes it's helpful when we know famous people and we think, all right, if the scale was good person and bad person, and we take these extremes and we say, all right, perfect person. Well, nobody's perfect. And then we take evil person. All they've ever done is evil their whole life. And then you start thinking, well, we're probably somewhere on that scale because, you know, black and white, just like you said, Pastor Phil, that's the way we think. So if we think like that, where do you put Mother Teresa on that scale? Where do you put Hitler? Do you say, well, Mother Teresa wasn't perfect, but she was really good. And then Hitler, you say, well, he probably wasn't evil every moment of every day, but he was really bad. And so on and so forth. Gandhi or Pol Pot, Nelson Mandela, any of our recent presidents, Mr. Rogers, Billy Graham. You start taking all these well-known people and you try and think, all right, let's put them there and them there and them there. And then here's the question. Where do you draw the line? At what point do you draw the line of like, okay, bad, wicked, that's the sort of people that David's talking about in Psalm 5. And then those are the kind of people that David's saying are going to find refuge and protection. And what I have seen time and time again is that a lot of us, if not all of us, have this tendency to draw the line right here. If this is the perfect, over here, that's the evil. We're going to say, the line for good and bad is right there. And I'm on the good side. So I'm not saying I'm like Mother Teresa. I'm not Nelson Mandela or Gandhi or some sort of like person that the world sees as like this righteous person. But I know that I've done some bad things. And so it's, it's like right there. There's a problem with this. Even if you can admit that you've done some bad things, caused others pain, Maybe you've insulted someone, maybe you've gossiped, maybe you've lied or stolen. Maybe you've sped in your car and caused a car accident. One way or another, you can admit you've done something that was wrong and it caused suffering in this world. At someone else's expense, you've chosen for your own freedom and liberty to do something. And the Bible calls this sin and evil. And what if maybe the line between good and evil is not between you and God or you and some of the other people in the world. What if the line between good and evil was right down the middle? See, that makes this application point a lot more challenging, doesn't it? What if both the good and the evil was right down the middle of your soul? To illustrate this, G.K. Chesterton, who's a well-known author in England, he once wrote a very, very short letter to the London Times. It was called in response to a poll question, and the newspaper put this out to all of its readers and said, what is wrong with our world? And people were encouraged to submit responses, and Chesterton wrote to the newspaper the shortest response out of every entry that was submitted. It was so short that the newspaper deemed it to be the shortest letter that they had ever received in their history. Here's the letter. Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? Answer, I am. One of the most basic and fundamental teachings of the Bible is that you are both simultaneously made in the image of God, and in a common grace sort of way, do good things. But 
all of us have sinned and rebelled against a holy God. And we are evil. This does not mean that you are the same as Hitler or a terrorist or a pedophile. It does also not mean that all you do is think bad thoughts and do bad things all day long. But as an application illustration experiment, I want you to consider what if all of the seven plus billion people in the world only did one evil act every year. That's it. Just one bad thing all year. 2021, just one bad thing. This would be an amazing reduction of evil. This would start to feel like paradise on earth if that were truly the case. Just one bad thing the entire year? Think about that. Even then, that would be seven billion acts of evil in the world. If you can agree with me that each of us need to draw the line of good and evil and apply Psalm 5, both the righteous and the wicked, to our own heart and life, then what are we going to do? How are we going to read Psalm 5 and use it in our prayer times this week? If it's both about us on the righteous side and about us and the wicked side. One writer said it this way. How's God going to intervene and put an end to the evil in this world? At what level should he intervene? We might say he shouldn't allow the the most terrible terrorists in the world to live, and so we should get rid of them. But then if we say that, who would be the next worst people in the world? Would it be thugs, rapists, child abusers, drug pushers? Should God come in and stop them and say, yep, you're the wicked, cast them out, be done with them, and then the world would be a perfect place? Well, no, because if he did that, then there would be another layer of offenders. Then there would be drunkards, shoplifters, burglars. And then if we argue this again and again, we would get to the point where we would demand that God would need to remove every single one of us. Do you see what the author is saying? For God to deal with all evil people in the world, he would have to deal with all people. It means if God is going to cast out the wicked, as Psalm 5 says, then he must cast you out. He would have to get rid of you and me. So let's be honest. Don't we like to draw the line right here and basically think that everybody is worse than us and that me and a few others were good. It's just a little too convenient, isn't it? A little too self-serving. I don't know about you, but there's something a little off with that kind of thinking. At some point or another, if God got rid of all those other evil people, I would become the most evil man on the planet. And we already know that the Bible tells us in the greatest kind of story of judgment, that when God looks out on the earth in the story of Noah, read in Genesis 6 to 9, to put an end to all the evil in the world would mean to get rid of all people because even when he got rid of every single human except for the one righteous person on the whole world, this is the story of the flood. 
As soon as the flood was over, the disease of sin was still on the earth because the disease of sin was still in the ark. As soon as they get off that flood, get off that boat, out of the flood, Noah gets drunk, and in that drunken stupor, some sort of shady thing happens in a tent, and there's this downward spiraling effect of sin that still haunts us today. So either God shows up and wipes us all out for all the evil inside of us, or God doesn't actually hate evil, and he allows evil to go unchecked for the rest of human history and for all of eternity. Do you like those alternatives? God either removes all of us, and therefore there are no righteous on the earth, and therefore there are no people on the earth, or he actually isn't the God of Psalm 5 one that can't stand being around wickedness. Not even for a moment to have the presence of evil in his house. He can't even be a a temporary overnight guest. He abhors the bloodthirsty. This is not, well, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Read Psalm 5 again. It's not, he hates the things they do. It's the people that are doing them that Psalm 5 is talking about. So I think if those are the two alternatives, then we really don't have much going for us. He either gets rid of everybody or we have a God that loves evil. And Psalm 5 says God does not love evil. So then he must get rid of everybody. But perhaps there's a third option. And did you know that the Bible gives us precisely that? An alternative option? Not wipe out everybody in the whole world and not just tolerate evil? What if God gave us the power to change and hearts of love? In the Bible, we call this repentance. People who are, were, and are doing wicked things and turn from their sins and have a new life born within them and be placed on a trajectory to becoming righteous. This is what the Christian gospel is about. God in Jesus Christ does not punish us as we deserve. He does not have the plan to get rid of every single human on the whole earth. He promises to put his Holy Spirit in our hearts to give us the power to turn from evil. And initially, not perfectly, but slowly, changing us from the inside out so that the world would increasingly become a new kind of people that do not perpetuate the problem of wickedness. This is the only possible option if God is not going to get rid of all the people, but wants to get rid of all of the evil. It's to have the people changed. So how does that happen? How does transformation come from the inside out? And Psalm 5 tells us that God hates the wicked and he blesses the righteous. So in other words, how do we become righteous truly? And I think the answer is really found in the way that Romans chapter 3 uses our psalm. When Sybil got up for us earlier in the service, she read for us Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then? Are the Jews better off because they have God's special holy law? For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, both of them are under sin. 
And as it is written, now he starts quoting all of these psalms in Old Testament scriptures. And in Romans 3, he says, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And then Psalm 5, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, lips. Snakes, they have a snake's tongue. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Yes, they are the bloodthirsty. In path, their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's his collection of Old Testament quotations to make the point whether you are a Jewish person or a Gentile person. Everyone on the whole earth, this is us. And we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those, especially who are under the law, Jewish people, so that every single one of their mouths would be stopped and they would be silenced to say, uh-oh, he's talking about me. I'm the wicked one. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law only will come the knowledge of sin. The answer to change your heart is not doing a bunch of laws, obeying a bunch of commands, not coming to church more regularly just so you can learn how to become more righteous. The answer is found in the way Sybil closed her prayer. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God poured forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The answer of the Bible is that if God is righteous and good and just the way he's described in Psalm 5, then he should get rid of all of us. And that's precisely the way Paul is arguing. God should cast out hate and punish you for all of your sins. But because of his divine forbearance, because of his mercy, God punished Jesus, his son, as our substitute in our place, so that if you would put your faith in Jesus, turn from your sin, and accept a gift, you could be changed. And the love of God could be poured out into your heart. That's the message of the whole Bible. It must begin with the black and white of Psalm 5, but now you and I are stuck with a decision. Which letter are you going to receive? Which message from God are you going to cling on to? That the God who hates sinners also loves sinners and he loves you if you are in Christ Jesus by faith and faith alone as a gift? Or are you going to receive the message that God hates sinners and that's all you are because you are outside of Christ? No faith in him, no trust in him, no repentance, no turning in your heart, no being moved and stirred by the Spirit, 
Both of those are options today. I'm pleading with you. Receive the real letter that was written. The letter of the Bible is that God, in fact, does love humanity. And he has displayed that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come now in the name of Jesus because there is no other name by which we can approach your throne, the holy, true temple in heaven, and bow before you the way David describes here in Psalm 5, to bow before your holy temple and in fear of reverence and awe to offer up our prayers, our petitions, our worship. And so I ask one simple thing as we close out our service of worship now. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would convict us of our sin, help us understand that we are the wicked. But because of the gracious, gracious love and mercy, the chesed love that you have displayed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can and now become righteous and pray Psalm 5 as our very own, that you are our King and our God, and that you hear our prayers, that you hear our groans, you hear our sighs. Even when we don't have words, you are the God who hears us. And we can take comfort and refuge in your protection from all of our enemies, all suffering and pain, and be covered by your blood, held in your hand, and sheltered by your wing. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.